0: It was made on a virtually impossible timeline in an era when games would take six months or more to develop E.T. the extraterrestrial was made in only five weeks in order to push it out in time for Christmas of 1982 and unfortunately it played exactly like a game that was made in five weeks in order to push it out in time for Christmas in 1982 E.T. the extraterrestrial has a distinction of being recognized as one of the worst video games of all time, and it's later become the face of what is perhaps the greatest recession the video game industry has ever seen, what is now known as the Video Game Crash of 1983. Is it fair to blame E.T. for this crash? Or perhaps were there other reasons that it all came crashing down? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll talk about the 1982 Less Than Smash hit ET the Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600 and look at all the causes, reasons, and effects of the great video game crash of 1983. So, stick around and learn about our hobby's greatest recession as we take today's trip down memory card lane. morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 67th episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one title relevant to the current week in gaming history, and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, and what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're heading back to the moment in which it all came crashing down by looking at what is notoriously one of the worst video games of all time, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, released for the Atari 2600 in December of 1982. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is also addicted to Reese's Pieces, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, have you ever had the phone at home? Oh, yeah, many
1: times, man. <laughs> many, I many had, times. I had a car that just kept breaking
0: down on me in college and had to get help. I believe that's the plot of the E.T. the movie. He had a, you know, ship that broke down and had to phone home for help. While I was away visiting college, yeah. Do you feel close to E.T.?
1: Uh, I am out of this world.
0: Ooh, that was quick thinking. I'm... I'm oddly impressed right now. Not even going to lie. Nah, yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have you been playing in the previous week?
1: Well, this week's been uh, mostly just RuneScape and New World. How's New World? Uh, a lot like RuneScape, but more high res graphics.
0: Yeah, okay. Kind
1: I of. It's, it's very similar. It, it's a lot more of the skill, like you pick skills and you upgrade those skills, and there's a trading market or you can do quests. Uh, I mean, it's so basically any it, RPG.
0: So it's an MMO. Yeah. Yeah. That's it cool. Is. Yeah. Cool beans.
1: How about yourself? What have you been playing?
0: I have been playing Forza, as have you. You mentioned
1: that. Yeah, there was one night of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we played Forza and I have also been playing Hades. I got back into that. I was a little disappointed for whatever reason. My previous save file for Hades was nowhere to be found. So I had to start that over. Not the biggest loss. It's a great game. I I don't mind at all, but still, you know, a little disappointed when you ever you lose progress. Um, I started playing one of the Dark Pictures anthologies, uh, Man of Medan, Medan. I don't know how to say it. I probably should have listened to the game. (laughs) I know, right? And I think that is it. Yes. And hey, since the last time we recorded, we actually saw one another because I came to Michigan. Huh? Yeah, Uh? yeah, you did. That's pretty cool. It was nice to see you. It was nice. So, but uh, yeah, so been up to some stuff and uh, just playing catch up, just playing catch up. So here we are, 67 episodes in, about to talk uh, about a major point in the history of video games, a turning point, if you will, one that was definitely make our break for the industry. Do you know much about the video game crash of
1: 83? Uh, I didn't know there was a video game crash. I just know that E.T. was a terrible, terrible, terrible game. And And that there was a landfill just filled with
0: them. So you had no idea that it was. You had no idea that the video game industry basically crashed and it's noted as being one of the contributing factors. I didn't know. No. Okay, cool. Well, then you're going to learn a whole lot today. So <laughs> so our story today goes back to 1981 when Howard Scott Warshaw was hired to work at Atari. His first notable success was a nineteen early 1982 Atari VCS or 2600 title. The Atari uh, video computing system, the VCS, is also known as the 2600. So uh, Atari title, Yars Revenge. So Yars which interestingly enough is the best selling original game for the Atari 2600 was originally conceived as a licensed port of an arcade game called star castle and not to get into it. But basically what happened was as Warshaw got into the development of this port, he realized that he couldn't port it over accurately because the Atari 2600 it was just the hardware limitations. It it wasn't an arcade system, you know. The arcade systems were big, beefy, sometimes multi-card units. You know, they 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 technologically they were a lot further ahead than the the home consoles. You know, they we hadn't got to that point with ha- home consoles where they had that that much power under the hood. So he couldn't port it over, right? Right. And so what he basically did is he, he took the concept of what was Star Castle and he readapted it into a completely uh completely new game. And Yara's Revenge was, and might I add, is a, a success. It's typically regarded as the, you know, um, one of the best, definitely the best selling original original titles for that system. So yay, Howard Scott Warshaw. Great programmer, right? Right. So because of his success with Yars, he was asked next to design the video game adaption of the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this was released later on in 1982 and was also a commercial success. So with two hits in a row, you know, uh, success with Yars, success with Raiders, it kind of earned him the nod to create a game based on what at the time was an incredibly successful summer blockbuster called E.T. The extraterrestrial terrestrial. Rob, have you ever seen the E.T. The movie? I have, Dave. You have. I think everyone's seen E.T. The movie. E.T. Phone home. When yeah, it came. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Right. So when it came time for the movie. Uh, uh, when it came time for them to, when they were considering to making a game about the movie, uh, Steven Spielberg specifically asked for Warshaw, uh, you know, he, they had kind of vaguely, you know, interacted with Raiders and, you know, Raiders was such a, the game was such a success that, you know, Steven Spielberg said, Hey, I want that guy to do this one. And so it came to be that on July 27th, 1982, Howard Scott Warshaw was called, Uh, with the hopes of, 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 you know, picking him to be developer of this new game. There was a catch, though. The catch was that they wanted the game to be ready for the Christmas holiday. Now, this phone call, this first phone call, came on July 27th. They needed the game, in order to be ready for Christmas, to be finished by September 1st. Which left roughly oh. five weeks for E.T. to be finished on time.
1: thought it was a little longer than that. I knew it was short. I thought it was at least a couple months. Nope. Damn.
0: Nope, 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 nope. Now, I want to put this in perspective for members of our listening audience who have no concept on how long this stuff takes. You know, nowadays games are in development for years, so it's really not very fair to compare it to modern development. But let's look briefly at how long it took Warshaw to, to develop his, his his successes, right? So Yar's Revenge took about seven months of work, and Raiders of the Lost Ark took about six months of work. And so here he is. Steven Spielberg is asking him to make a game and he's staring down the barrel of a 5 week deadline. I mean that's just crazy, you know? Yeah. But who's going to say no to Steven Spielberg? Y- you know uh, what I mean? Clearly not this group. Clearly not not Warshaw. Yeah. So Warshaw originally conceived of an i of a of a concept, a game concept where he wanted uh, there were, there were four four ideas. So the world he had one. He had an objective. You know, this is how he designs, right? He split He split his games into four ideas. You had the world, the objective, the path to achieve the objective, and the obstacles. So what he had in his mind was a six-sided world in which players could float around. And he wanted to adapt part of the film's plot, which was E.T. phoning home as the goal. So in his mind, the player would have to gather all these parts to put the phone together to call the ship and it would have to be there at the ship to be picked up at the sh- at, at, at the, say extraction site to win the game. You know, he he saw obstacles uh, you know, that would be in the way that would allow you to you know, be successful or not be successful. You know, he the difficulty of the game in his mind was different time, time constraints, you know, and he knew he was going to struggle with this with, with technical limitations like he did on Revenge, you know um and he also kind of had thought about the fact that he wanted adults that would be that would chase the alien just like in the movie right right and then the infamous pits so in this game there are holes you fall into that are pits and the pieces of the phone would be in these pits that was kind of designed as a way to to make the world bigger that you know that was a device to make the world bigger that he he could make it because of technical limitations so and so he took this concept which was basically just you know a six-sided world going to find phone parts to phone home and he presented it to spielberg and the truth is is that steven spielberg was less than thrilled with this idea so according to a later uh, interview with uh, howard scott warshaw uh, Spielberg looked at him and said, Couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? <laughs> oh. Well. Well, well, Pac-Man was the thing, you know? I mean, I suppose, uh, but... but But Warshaw didn't just want to copy Pac-Man. That that, that, that who that, that no. That's not what he wanted to do. And so he stuck with his original vision and he made the game just as he, you know, kind of as best as he could have With with his original vision. Uh, You know, it's kind of funny because in hindsight, he says that maybe uh, Steven Spielberg had had a a good notion (laughs) in past interviews. Maybe maybe Spielberg was right. In hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have created the worst video game of all time. I mean, yeah, who knows? So five weeks writes the game, designs it, programs it. I think he had two other people worked on it with him. He had an artist, and he had a someone who did the music, if I'm not mistaken. But he did everything else within the time period. Uh, as you can imagine, there was no testing of the game. You know, normally at the, in this period, they would put it in front of a, a do what's called an audience test. No time. You know, wasn't like they could make the game in four weeks and test it for one. Nope, nothing. They made the game in five weeks by September 1st. And they pushed it out in time for Christmas of 1982. So. Have you ever played or come across this game before? I haven't played it, but I've seen videos of it being played. Okay, All right. So let's take a moment and talk about what what it is. Um, It's very much like it it very much is uh, Warshaw's original vision et is basically a, a, an adventure game you are you are et you know looking from the top down perspective and basically your goal is to collect three pieces of an interplanetary telephone now these pieces as i said are found scattered randomly in pits um there is no time limit you get an on screen that you have an energy bar you have health basically and anytime you perform an action, uh, moving, teleporting, falling into the pit, crawling out of the pit, uh, you lose energy. Uh, in order to not lose all your energy, there are Reese's Pieces, or they would look like little round balls, <laughs> because, you know, this was 1982, which are used to restore the energy. And when you collect nine of said Reese's Pieces, you can call Elliot, Elliot. To obtain a piece of the telephone. And then after after you get all the phone pieces. All three pieces. You have to go to a, an area. Where you can use the phone. And call your home planet. And then a timer appears. And you have to arrive back at a landing zone. Before it reaches zero. And that's it. Uh, if you get to the the forest. And you are there before the timer comes. Our timer is up. A ship comes and takes you away. You go back home. Then the game starts over with the phone pieces in a different place. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's 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 what all the hubbub is about. That is what all the hubbub is about. So as we had talked about The game is divided. It's six-sided. There are six different environments. They're all different settings from the film. And each of them have the wells. You get your phone. You get out of it. And then, you know, there's the enemies too. You get chased down by scientists. There's FBI agents. And then there were different difficulties that would affect the amount of, you know, people chasing you down. The speed of people chasing you down. And just the, you know... I guess that would be the overall difficulty. So yeah, that that's, that's, that's the game in a nutshell. Interesting, huh?
1: Yeah, there's not much to it.
0: No, there's not much to it. But we're, but realistically, was there ever much to any game back then? Oh, no, not at all. No, I mean, it's just the time period. I, I do remember playing E.T. I didn't understand it back then. I don't know if I would understand it better now. I honestly didn't have an opportunity to play it I will um there were other things going on for us obviously since I traveled (laughs) there were other things for us going on I I I just remember not knowing what the hell was going on that's the that's the prevalent thought I have for E.T. is that it was confusing and I didn't understand it and so it's always been a bad game to me because I didn't understand it
1: yeah it seems to be the case for a lot of people
0: Well, you know, I'm not alone. Let's let's take a look at it as a retrospective, you know, uh, because we're already (laughs) we're already here. This game is typically regarded as one of the if not the worst video game of all time. You know, commercially, it sold a ton of copies. We're talking millions of copies, millions of copies, Uh, but it was critically panned and it was returned left and right, you know. (laughs) But I guess the key, the question is right off the bat, because I have more, you know, I want to I talk about the video game crash is, am I the only one? And to find out if I'm the only one, Rob, as usual, I pulled some user reviews, which you're going to get to read here in a moment, earlier than normal in the middle of the episode, mm. mixing it up a little bit. Um, Weird. I know, right? But let's jump on that pretty early and find out if if I'm crazy or if other people had issue with E.T. as well.
1: Alright, well first up for Mobi games, we have user Arijarn who says, Before I get onto the bad, I have to let you know how excited I felt when they were announcing a game based off that brilliant movie. After seeing that movie in theaters, it was a lifetime favorite of mine. Sometime later, I hear that they released a game of E.T. and I couldn't sleep for many nights. As soon as I get the game, I'm thrilled because I believed I was going to have a blast. But enough talk, let's talk about the flaws about this garbage. As soon as I get past the title screen, I see E.T. landing on Earth in a pint-sized spaceship. Now, I believe he was stranded on Earth as the other aliens seem to forget him. So far, the game hasn't followed the film too much, but I'll let it slip. The game doesn't give you any instruction in what to do, but you had to find all the parts of a phone in order to phone home. Who in the right mind would just break a perfectly useful mobile phone and scatter the pieces around the area in order to make our job even harder? Now, you'd think that we just got it all sorted out, right? No. The confusion has just begun. You then have to wander through many different places and collect stuff while trying to withstand a time limit as well. Anyway... Back to the phone. To collect some of the parts, you have to fall into these random holes in the ground and collect the phone part. In order to get out, you have to raise ET's neck to fly. Remember that from the movie? There's just so much crap in this game. I could spend all day writing about the bad, but you know what? I won't. Onto the bottom line. Whoever made this game, better phone home. Because if I find him, I'm going to force him to play this game so that he can know how much misery he has caused me. As a kid, I thought that the game was playable for five minutes. I'm starting to wish that I put a copy of the game in the Atari landfill of September 1983. Yes, it's really that bad, and you don't want to play it. I may have forgotten a few minor points about the game, but I haven't played it for over 20 years.
0: Okay, so maybe I'm not the only one.
1: No, no, maybe not, Dave. Well, I mean, I guess we can find out from the next one, who also from Moby Games is Ashley Pomeroy, who first played this game a couple of years after it came out, when she was 10 years old or so. She says it didn't seem all that bad at the time, and a lot of the subsequent criticism, which had been heaped on the game, just seems to be bandwagon jumping. It's no worse than any of the other 2600 Adventure-style games, such as Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, well, Adventure, I suppose, although the latter has historical interest. It has a nice theme tune and a good picture of E.T. The game is simple enough to play and passes the time well enough. The graphic of E.T. during the game captures his likeness effectively. If you get bored, you can make his head go up and down, and up and down, up and down. However, E.T. is nowadays a notorious software failure. Atari paid a lot of money for the E.T. license, and when the game underperformed, thousands of unsold cartridges were buried in landfills, and there was no demand for them, and it was cheaper than storing them or selling them at a loss. The major gameplay element involves exploring a set of holes in the ground, something which wasn't in the film. But perhaps due to a lack of testing, it's very easy to fall back into the holes after you've clambered out. Furthermore, several of the screens have holes in such a position that, if you enter the screen from a certain direction, you tend to automatically fall into them. It's frustrating. Fandango Trombone The basic gameplay makes no sense if you don't have the instructions, as it is based around a set of icons which are meaningless in themselves. E.T. is a notorious flop. As a game, it's so-so, frustrating, and hard to follow, but easier to complete than most of the few other 2,600 adventures. Haunted House, however, thrashes it in every respect. The tale of surplus cartridges being pulped and buried gives it a certain cultural resonance, and along with the shoddy conversion of Pac-Man, it's an icon of the 1983 video games crash.
0: Yep. It's uh it's definitely a symbol a symbol of it. That's for sure. Uh well that's two. Should we go for the trifecta?
1: Sure thing, Dave. And to hit us with a lucky number 3, we have Servo from Moby Games who says that considering that programmer Howard Scott Warshaw completed this game in about 5 to 6 weeks at the time games usually took about 6 months as Dave said. It's amazing the game was finished at all, let alone as good as it is. The title screen looks quite good with the E.T. logo and drawing, and in-game graphics are solid with no flickering sprites, plenty of color, and varied screens which really weren't out of line with other 1982-era 2600 games. Sound effects are okay and include a decent rendition of the E.T. theme. With multiple skill levels and randomized locations for parts you need to find, there's some replay value. Adventure-style games are tough to make work with just a joystick and one button. Figuring the game out isn't particularly intuitive, and without the instruction manual, it's easy to wander about with no idea what's going on. Once you figure out how to play, the game at least makes some sense, and can be completed. Unfortunately, it just doesn't hold my attention too long, as I found the gameplay rather slow and unexciting. Falling down pits repeatedly is probably the most frustrating aspect, and even though it's not too hard to get out, after a while, it can still become tiresome. Had more time been given to the development of this game, it probably could have been made much more interesting. This game has a reputation for being one of the worst 2600 games made, if not one of the worst for any platform. While the game isn't very good and gameplay is overall rather dull, far worse games have been made before and after this. Many for the 2600 for some examples. Take a look at Airlock or Skeet Shoot. Later on, Active Enterprises would release 53 games that were much worse, which were contained in Action 52 and Cheetah Men 2. I don't think any of these and many other really bad games are often remembered since E.T. was heavily promoted and vastly overproduced due to the popularity of the movie. Rumors of a significant number of copies being dumped in a landfill doesn't help its reputation much either, which I think is usually too harsh. There definitely wasn't a rumor. They did find landfills.
0: They did find landfills. Well, Dave... They definitely found landfills.
1: It sounds like not everyone hated it because some people enjoyed the game for what it was because, I mean, considering that it was done in a fraction of the time, maybe it wasn't the worst piece of crap.
0: No, it was. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, fair enough, fair enough. Uh,
0: No, it was. You know, um, even Howard Scott Warshaw has a really good sense of humor about it You know, because he, A, no matter what the reputation of the game is, all of his gaming titles sold over a million copies. There aren't a lot of developers that that back then could say that.
1: True,
0: And he has a, you know, two of his titles are the best original, you know, what's seen as one of the best original games for the Atari in Yara's Revenge, and what's typically seen as the absolute worst title for uh you know everything uh in et and so he says there are there's probably no other developer that can brag about the range of their games that i can <laughs> so nice yeah i know i know well i mean come on he made it in five weeks man that's um that's great you know kudos to him guy got paid i think i think it's like two hundred thousand dollars to you know for five weeks of work
1: jeez yeah
0: Yeah, for real. But uh, yeah. So E.T. has become the face of the great video game crash of 1983. And so let's spend some time talking about the great video game crash of 1983. Have you ever heard of the video game crash before? It
1: doesn't. I'm trying to think of it. And I don't think in any of the documentaries or things that I've watched that I've heard about it. But you know. Surprisingly.
0: But, you know, about E.T. It's just weird. It's just weird because typically like the two are always put together for me. Like, I I don't know, I guess that's it. Like you always hear, well, E.T. contributed to the great video game crash, you know, the great video game crash. And I it's I don't know, it's just weird for me to see separate. So. Well, Rob, there was a great video game crash in 1983. Whoa, crazy, right? Crazy, I know., uh, so that's what we called it North America. In Japan, it was called the Atari Shock. And it was basically a huge, 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 huge huge, and I mean huge fucking death defying recession in the video game industry that lasted nearly two years. It led to the bankruptcy of several companies that made home computers. That made video game consoles and left analysts, critics, consumers really questioning whether or not video games were going to stick around, stick around, period. It also pretty much so it was already waning, but it was also kind of the death knell for the golden age of arcade games um, and, and so it wasn't just home consoles, which is which is where it's known for. It affected the arcade game market to, um, yeah, kind of helped bring up, bring about the end of the golden age of arcades, uh, you know. Mm, probably for you, what you want to know is or maybe not what everyone wants to know. So the video game crash really brought to an end rather abruptly what is known as the second generation of console gaming in North America. Do you know what generation we're on now? Uh, No. What do you think? Hmm. How many consoles do you think? How many generations of video games? 12. No, we're not up to 12 yet.
1: Damn.
0: I know. Is it seven? No, it's more than seven. We're on the ninth right now, oh, actually. Okay. We're on the ninth. We're definitely on the ninth, and and funny enough, the second, you know, we say that it brought it to an abrupt stop, but technically, the second uh, generation of video game consoles lasted from nineteen seventy six to nineteen ninety two. Do you know why it lasted all the way to nineteen ninety two? Um, hmm. nope, can't say that I do. Because the Atari twenty six hundred was in production until nineteen ninety two. Oh. Think about that. Uh well, let, I mean, let's go. When did the Atari come out? Do 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 you know that roughly? Nineteen eighties.
1: Actually, nineteen seventy-seven. Yes, seventy-seven. Yeah. 70s.
0: Yeah, nineteen seventy-seven to nineteen ninety-two. Do you know how many? Take a while guessing how many Atari twenty-six hundreds were sold. Hmm. 20,000. Oh, you got to do way better than that. More? Way 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 more. Atari 2600? We just talked about uh and I know I know I'm putting on the spot, but we just talked about how the game sold millions of copies.
1: Okay, maybe millions of people
0: (laughs) were bought. No, okay, hold
1: on, though. Millions of copies were bought, but everything ended up in a landfill. How do you know it's not just that the company reported millions sold because they bought them to sell to landfills?
0: Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one.
1: Okay, but Atari 2600s would probably say 3.7 million.
0: No, it's more. Uh, that would honestly not even in television sold 3 million copies. Uh, and that much was just
1: like Xbox and PlayStation sell now.
0: Okay. All right. I knew you were going to ask that. So I actually pulled up the statistics. So at the moment, at the moment, according to sales in the current generation, well, I can't pull up the current generation. I can only pull up the last one for official sales. The PlayStation four sold 112 million copies units. Yeah, and, damn. And the Xbox One sold 51 million units. In, yeah. case, you, in case you didn't know okay. that. It, and the Switch sold 89 million units.
1: So with those numbers, okay, let's try closer to 200. Well, no, I'd say 150 million.
0: No, no, gaming wasn't that big back then. It's actually uh. thir- It's 30 million. The Atari 2600 sold 30 million units, so... And and to kind of put into perspective, oh, okay. the NES sold 61 million units. So we, we started kinda going up from there. And then the SNES sold 50 million units. The PlayStation sold 102 million units. And we just kind of we, we just kind of keep going up from there. So so yeah, so here we are. We got a little sidetrack because I, I love all that number stuff. Um, The second generation of of console gaming. So there are generally seen to be four overall causes for the crash. And let's talk about the first one. The first one is known to be a flooded console market in the context of the second generation of of gaming consoles. So I would really like to do specific episodes on the generation someday. So I'm not going to go into too much detail more than what we already have. But basically what you need to know is that the Atari 2600 became a runaway success when Space Invaders was ported over to the system. Uh, Instantaneously, almost a million copies of that game was sold and suddenly everybody wanted a piece of that pie. Right. And so you had competition. You had the Odyssey come out and the Intellivision, the Colecovision, the, the Vectrex. Um, and there was even even Atari tried to tried to one up themselves by releasing the fifty Atari fifty two hundred, which was just a more powerful system. Now, let's not mention that you know the second generation, uh, you know second generation of gaming is here. We had just come off the first generation of console gaming, so the first con- con- generation of console gaming was basically like Pong clones and a lot of those like one game systems you know that you could take home and play because swappable game cartridges didn't really come out until towards the end of the first gen beginning of the second gen basically you know and so to kind of give you an idea on how bad the first generation was and how probably saturated the market was so we know of officially Of roughly about 1,000 different home video game consoles that were produced in the entirety of video game history. Okay? 1,000 consoles. Can you believe that? Uh, uh, No. Well, from the second generation on, only 100 have been reviewed or, or have been made. So roughly about 900 consoles were made in the first generation of of what's considered a console made in the first generation of gaming.
1: Jesus.
0: Hey, little fun fact. There's only one company that made uh, a first gen system that still makes games today. Do you know who it is? No. Think about OG. Think about old school. Who? Apple. No, not Apple. Apple's not. I mean, technically they're around, but not Apple. No, you'd know them. You're going to know this. Just think about it for a second. Who's an old school gaming console manufacturer? Atari. No, no, Atari. Atari didn't survive this process, honestly.
1: Well, that's what I'm. Atari is like the only thing I can think of at
0: the moment. Like it's Nintendo. nes
1: was considered first gen
0: no nes is third gen but they made they made consoles in the first and second generation too there there were there were nintendo systems before the nes
1: have we talked about them
0: we never have talked about them no no we have not no we have not and that's kind of why i want to talk about uh the the uh the generations um at some point because I think it'd be fun to look at some of the differences as we go forward. So uh, yeah,
1: I, I didn't know there was something before the NES. So this is news.
0: Yep. Yeah. Now, like I said, you got to consider the first generation is a lot of one off, like, you know, non-swappable cartridge systems. So like the early Nintendos were like, you know, maybe a Nintendo Pong clone, or I think there was a Nintendo racing game, you know, that you could just hook up to the TV and play the one game. Mm. So those okay. are, that's the first gen. Um, th- that's the, that's, that was the first gen, just so you know, but it's the only one who's left. And I mean, technically Atari is, is still the, you know, around, but they're not making consoles. Oh, I, well, I guess they are now, huh? Yeah,
1: they are yeah,
0: now. You, you. But you, you get what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, 900, a thousand, well, 900, you know, 900. So gaming consoles were everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. You also had competition from home computers. You know, it was in 1977 that the earliest inexpensive home computers were sold in stores. And so right then and there began the age old argument of what's better, console gaming or PC gaming. No joke. 1977. We, we joke around about, uh, you know, about that nowadays, but that that's that's an age old argument. Wow. You know, by the time this all rolled around 1982, because, you know, 1982 is when everything happened, you know, desktop computers could provide better color graphics. They could provide better sounds. And 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 so, you know, there was a lot of competition there. Gamers are gamers. You know, we eat that shit up, right? Right. And then in 1982, a price war began between Commodore and TI Texas Instruments that led to home computers being sold for about the same price as video game consoles. You know, in June of 1983, Commodore cut the retail price of the Commodore 64 to $300. And some retailers sold it even cheaper, where there are advertisements for it being sold as low as 199 which is about what the consoles were selling for. So when you have your choice between a gaming computer and a console for the same price, which one are you going to pick? Uh
1: yeah, that's a, an easy answer on the computer.
0: It was still an easy answer back in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Despite the price drops, you know, demand for home computers actually slowed down in the summer of 1983 here here in June. You know, that's why they cut the price. And so they cut the price, thinking that the demand for computers was going to wean. Right, you know, it, right. Was, it, it was going, it was going to die down. So they started making less. And then Christmas hit, and the demand for these gaming PCs shot through the flipping roof. Everyone was frankly left with their pants down. It was so bad that. For instance, the major retail chain, JCPenney, which is still around to this day, barely, but still around. JCPenney announced in December of 1983 that they were no longer going to be carrying home computers because, based, frankly, the low pricing of them and the the not being able to get them, you know, no supply, left it not worth their time whatsoever. So retailers couldn't get computers and said, we're out. Next we basically have so in 1979 four Atari programmers left Atari because they felt they weren't getting the recognition they deserved, right? So Atari was owned by Warner Communications. Yes, that Warner Communications. Now they're what one of the largest telecom companies. And so they saw other people in Warner, actors, directors, musicians, getting all this money and accolades and they said, hey, we feel that we're creating art too. We should be getting the same recognition as those guys. Makes it's pretty logical, right? Right. Do you think uh I think nowadays some game developers have celebrity status. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, I would say so. You know, we have the Miyazaki, not Miyazaki, Miyamoto's and the um Crap Concerned Ape is is uh, is pretty popular and Cliffy B and I could go on. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So these four Atari programmers, they left Atari and they formed Activision. So prior to Activision being formed in 1979, there were no third party developers whatsoever. You know, Ninten- not Nintendo. Atari made games for Atari. Commodore made games for Commodore and so on and so forth. But Activision changed that, completely changed the landscape of the market. You know, they created games like Pitfall. Pitfall sold over 4 million copies, and it was ported over to everything. And when people saw what Activision had done, they wanted in. They wanted in, just like everyone wanted in on the console wars. You know, game developers wanted in on the, the success of a third-party developer. To put this into perspective, you know, the, the CES, Consumer Electronics Show, in 1982, there were 17 companies developing games for the Atari who had in their pipeline around 900 new games that they announced. Or nine ninety, not 900. Jesus Christ, 900. Woo! So 17 companies, 90 games. A year later, in 1983, there were over 100 companies trying to present their games at CES. So 90 new gaming companies you know, roughly in the course of a year. And to put Hmm. it to to put into one other perspective in June of 1982, there were just over a hundred games available for the Atari, but by December of 1982, there were over 400 games available for the Atari. Wow. Now it's not like common time. You know, I I think that if we were to talk about that right now, I don't think that that's unreasonable because digital distribution has completely changed the way we look at, you know, gaming and gaming markets. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah, I'd say so. But at the time there weren't internet where people could learn about games and there wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't a a place that you could just go and download games. Like you had to physically go to a game store and walk around for God knows how long, reading the descriptions on the box, to decide what game you want, you know. And and uh, Nile an with one hundred games, it's one thing, but suddenly you had four hundred games. I mean, they're they're just they weren't ready for it, you know.
1: You telling me there wasn't just an entire channel with nothing but commercials of these games?
0: <laughs> no, honestly, I remember that I would get all of my news about new games from magazines. I used to be so excited for every month's magazine because it was the only way I I found out what new stuff was coming out. And you were so excited to go through the pages to find like, Oh, this game they announced it. Oh my God. They announced that game. When's this going to come out? And that was it. That's what we had like magazines, you know? Wow. So we have looked at a flooded console market and we've looked at competition from home computers. And now we've just talked about uh, a loss of publishing control, right? You know, Activision, Activision basically. um, and, And there's more to that story. We may get into it someday. You know, Atari wasn't happy when Activision did that. So they sued them and basically, you know, lost you know Activision could make games but they had to pay licensing rights to Atari which became the standard for the market licensing rights to the consoles everyone does it still so um so yeah 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 but that brings us to ET where does ET the extraterrestrial fall into all this well it sucked yeah it did
1: <laughs> yeah pretty much so people people probably didn't uh, like that very much and no. thought that all games would start to suck.
0: Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly it. It The last the, the fourth cause typically seen is a complete lack of consumer loss or lack of consumer confidence, right? So prior to 82, Atari was the dominant company in the video game industry. But for all the reasons we have now been talking about, they started to slip. They were no longer the top dog. And so they made a series of decisions to try to get back or stay at the top that just didn't work out, you know, and these decisions caused everyone to lose confidence in them. And since they were the face of the whole industry, the whole industry took the egg on its face, right? Mm -hmm. As a company, as they started to slip, Atari started to focus on business opportunities as opposed to innovation and gaming. You know, they they had had some success porting over some arcade hits. And so they really just began to look for any and all lucrative licensing opportunities that they felt would just give them the leg up on the competition. And so this is where E.T. came from. But it's not the only game that contributed to this. E.T. is only half the the discussion. The other half was Pac-Man. So believe it or not, when Pac-Man... They licensed it and they ported it over to the Atari 2600. It was awful. It was not a good port. It had had awful graphics. It played awful. It just was not by any means a good representation of Pac-Man. But it was Pac-Man, man. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, how could they get it wrong?
0: Yeah, and so you had you had all these people who bought millions of copies of Pac-Man and millions of copies of E.T. by Atari, your biggest video game company in the world, and they sucked, and suddenly everyone was like, uh, I don't think so. You know?
1: Yeah, that's pretty unnerving.
0: These were the big ones. These were the face. You know, Pac-Man and E.T. were the, the ones that just Caused everything, you know. They they were the ones that really left a bitter taste in everyone's mouth. But the truth of the matter is, is that you know, bargain titles were flooding the market. All these games, four hundred and some odd games, you know, they were once selling for thirty five dollars. But no one, no one could, no one could could get rid of them anymore. And so there were literally bins of five dollar games just laying around, you know. And communicate, you know, communication wasn't like it is today. Information wasn't prevalent. And so people really, truly shot by price, not by quality. So parents were digging games out of these $5 bins and taking them home. And all these games were bargain, bargain titles. They were, they were awful. And so people were like, well, maybe this fad is over, you know? I mean, it makes sense. At the moment it was hell. Yeah. Companies began to bow out of the video game market all over the place. MagnaVision said, nah, we're done with video games. Other publishers were out. Atari, uh, by mid-1983, they had lost $356 million through this mess and were forced to lay off about 3,000 people. Then comes the famous land uh, landfill episode or uh, landfill incident, whatever you want to call it. So yes, the urban legend is that they had a ton of of unsold cartridges of of specifically of ET and that they were famously buried in a new Mexico landfill. The truth of the matter is yes, there were a lot of uh, cartridges that were indeed buried there. Uh, There's a really fascinating documentary that came out in 2020. I think it was last year. uh, That tells you the whole story about it. Uh, The truth of the matter is though, what you'll find out is that, uh, the urban legend is kind of true, but they only buried about seven hundred and twenty eight thousand copies of the game, not millions.
1: Uh, and then seems much more reasonable,
0: yeah. And then Atari just kind of continued to lose money, right? You know, by the by the end of nineteen eighty three, it was fi- their losses were five hundred some million, and so Warner Communications said, "Eh, we're done." They sold Atari to Commodore uh, in nineteen eighty four. Commodore took Atari and pushed them onto the home computer realm cuz Atari had their ST and Atari would kind of you know f- kind of stay along for a little while until they made what the Jaguar and then kind of implode kind of like the industry did in 1983 <laughs> Virtually no games were developed in 1984, no systems, no innovations, nothing. Can you imagine a whole year where video games just weren't made? Nothing new?
1: Might uh, give it, it, actually,
0: it actually might be nice now because we could get caught up more so <laughs> on our huge backlog.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It'd be kind of weird, but there's definitely been a year or two where I didn't get anything new and just waited it out.
0: Well, there wasn't anything new to be had. I, okay look so I'm 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 a you know I, I'm going to sum up I'm going to sum up how bad this video game crash was and then we can take it out of here In 1983 sales of home video game consoles and games in the United States were 3.2 billion dollars In 1985 they only amounted to 100 million dollars Oh, a little bit of a loss, a little bit. Yeah, just just a little bit. Ouch. That's a big swing.
1: Yeah, that's ginormous.
0: Yeah, it was a serious recession. It, It was it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, we kind of lost money and, you know, so we're so we're so we're hesitant. It was. We seriously lost a lot of fucking money and we don't think we want to do this anymore, you know? Now, it wasn't as bad. Truthfully, it wasn't as bad outside the United States. It wasn't as bad outside the United States. Um, it's called the Atari shock in Japan because the shock waves went to Japan and affected it, but Japan was in a little economic bubble and their gaming companies were doing well and so they weren't affected. I think across the world... The whole market lost like 14 or 15 billion dollars, um, which was like a third of the, the worldwide uh, market. I should have I, I should have put that down there. Really wanted to focus on the North American side of it. Point is, is that it still kind of went strong in Europe and Japan. And thank God it did, because, you know, um if it hadn't, we may not be where we are now because it was a little successful Japanese company, you know, that stepped in and saved the day. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But I I want to save that story for another day because for those of you who don't know, it was the Nintendo Entertainment System, Nintendo, you know, who came in and brought their home console over to the United States, and that really revitalized the gaming industry. And it said that if they hadn't done that. There might not be a North American video game industry like the one we have now. Um, But the story of the Nintendo, I want to tell specifically because it's really fascinating. Because they actually had to change the console, the design of it. The reason reason why the Nintendo looks so different in the United States is because they made it purposely look as far away from other consoles as possible because they were afraid that people were going to not buy it because it looked like a video game console. And so one little fun fact I will leave you with before we close it out for today is if you think about it, then the NES looks more like a blocky VCR than some of the cool sleek video game systems prior to that. And that's the reason why. So, well, it's cool. If you think about, no, really the, the, do you do you remember what the Japanese Famicom looks like? The top loading, like the red system that you top load cartridges in. Yeah, and then they brought it over to the United States, and what does it look like? It's a gray box. Yeah, well, you know, that's the reason. Little fun fact. So that actually is pretty cool. It, it's very cool, but yeah, that's I have a I have a Nintendo episode planned for next year, so we'll talk about that when we talk about the Nintendo. But that my friend is uh a, a you know a in less than an hour actually that was more like thirty minute primer on the video game crash of nineteen eighty three what do you think
1: very interesting to learn and uh great to see that video games bounced back and made a recovery did they though uh I think so, yeah, yeah, just a wee bit,
0: yeah,
1: you any questions? Uh, I mean, I have a lot of questions, but
0: none that pertain to the current topic at hand. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. Smart ass. Well, if you, anyone out there would like to learn more about the video game crash, there are other not really causes, but, you know, there's some fascinating stuff I, I, I will post the links for. If you'd like to look at detail about the first generation of gaming console gaming or the second generation of console gaming, or just do some some more reading on it. I'll post all my links on the show notes, you know, on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Also on memorycardlane.com, you will find a calendar of upcoming events, though we really need to put up the first quarter of the year. So that'll be coming soon. And there is a biography. There's a submission button if you'd like to submit your own uh ideas questions comments etc for a chance for us to review them excuse me here on the air uh there's also a link to our discord where you can join our community play games with us complain to us scream about how wrong i am because yes that's a legit thing that happens and our social media links are on there i can be found on twitch at david is wrong rob what you got going on social media
1: be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z.
0: Awesome. Well, this is about the time in each episode where we wrap it up. You know, every week we try to teach you something new about a game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. I think today we have a lot of each column in there. But as part of our learning process, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways for the week. So, Rob... What is your biggest takeaway from today's episode the video gaming crash you know, what's that's... what's what, what was specifically shocking
1: uh the fact that it could go from three point two billion to a hundred million I'm gonna tell which, you and- yeah still today be a thing
0: yeah so i i mean i obviously i know about the crash you know and and the reasons and 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 a lot of that was not review but i think that's the first time i ever really paid attention to the scale of it and i didn't realize how drastic it was um i I, that that was that was my big takeaway too i i i guess i never really paid that close attention before but wow that was that's that's what they call a recession you know what i mean
1: Oh, absolutely. It is. It's, it's insane. And
0: just the fact that they were able to come back from it at all. Yep. 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 All right. Well, I think that's a good place to take it out for today. Before I give our little teaser for next week, what else would you like to add?
1: As always, I have to take a moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It is an honor. We enjoy doing this. We love doing this. We hope you're enjoying it too. And, you know, we love to hear about it. So be sure to let us know what you think.
0: Yes, please, please let us know what you think. It's, it's nice to get feedback. We only want to get better for you guys, positive or negative feedback. Either way, as long as it's as long as it's constructive, we will take it, you know, hop on those, you know, Apple podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us that rating and and, and tell us in the world what you think about us. That would be great. So yeah, I I echo that sentiment. Thank you and and help us help us do more. So that being said, let's look forward to next week. So our game next week was one of the earliest examples of advertising in video games. Originally sponsored by Anheuser Busch, the arcade version of Tapper was designed to be placed in bars with cabinets that sported brass rail footrests and brass drink holders. But it was only one of many video games that had advertising in them, which gives us a really good starting point to talk about video games as a whole that were created as corporate advertisements. So that's that's our topic for next week. We're gonna look at we're gonna look at corporate what do they call it? Adver advertisement. It has a specific genre where it's like a like like one of them is Chex Mix. We talked to our Chex Quest. Remember Chex Quest? Uh, yes, yes. Chex Quest and Sneak King, uh, Burger King, Sneak King. Didn't I send you that picture of that guy who had over 2000 copies of Sneak King recently? You
1: sure did,
0: dude. Man, I don't know. So anyways, we're going to be taking a look at all these video games that were specifically created as corporate advertisements. Uh, I, 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 It's really fascinating. There's a lot that I, I never knew before researching so uh join us again next week grab those foil hats and don't let the subliminal subliminal marketing get to you as we take a buy more buy more buy 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 more please buy more buy, buy 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 trip down memory card lane
1: do the thing